I'm here with Dr. Caitlin McDonald. Caitlin holds a PhD in Arab and Islamic studies from the University of Exeter in England. Her findings about the international belly dance community have been presented at several international and interdisciplinary conferences. She's also an avid writer of nonfiction and a skirt setter for US-based Skirt Magazine's website. She blogs at caitlinmcdonald.blog.com. Caitlin is also the author of the Lean Pub book, Global Moves, Belly Dance as an Extraordinary Space to Explore Social Paradigms in Egypt and Around the World. We're going to talk today about Caitlin's book, her experiences as a writer, and her experience with Lean Pub. We're also going to talk about ways we can improve Lean Pub for her. So Caitlin, thanks very much for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first off... Um, Reading your blog, I discovered you're not only a PhD, but you're also a belly dancer and a practitioner of jiu-jitsu. So Indeed. what's it like to do both jiu-jitsu and belly dance, and what led you to choose to take them up? Um, well, uh, I would say that the jiu-jitsu was actually a, it was a bit of a reaction to the belly dance, because when I was in the middle of my PhD, all I would do all day was write about belly dance or read other people's writings about belly dance, and, and my whole life was belly dance, and it was a bit like being in you know, working in the ice cream store and you, you wanted something that was a little bit different, but that was still physically active and, you know, social and, and that you needed to learn. And so jujitsu was my, was my thing that I did. Um, and that was great. And the reason that I took up belly dance was, um, uh, basically it looked like a lot of fun and I was, you know, um, I started doing it when I was about 17. Um, and that kind of, um, it just continued from there. So, so, okay. So, so, okay. So that's what I was going to ask is your belly dance predates your academic research. And it then, does, yeah. And then the jujitsu happened during academic during yeah. your PhD. Okay, yes, exactly. interesting. Okay. Um, so let's talk about your book, Global Moves. How did it come about, and what's its relationship to its to your PhD? It's not exactly your PhD thesis, but is it like excerpted from it, or how how does the relationship between them? It's modified. It's modified. Um, it's certainly all the research is is based on my PhD, um, and it's it's modified to make it um, more more readable to a more general audience. Um, certainly a very smart audience, and I'm I'm hoping that lots of people will find it very interesting, um, and and updated as well. There were some, um, you know, I got to speak again to several of the people that I'd researched and, and update some of their stories and, and talk about what they were doing in the intervening time because it took quite a long time because of course when I started my research that was way back in um, you know 2006-2007 um, by the time I got to the point where I was finishing my thesis it was already you know three years down the line and then um, it took quite a long time to adapt the book so uh, it was nice to go back to that and have a chance to um, look at what was going on um, and, and of course around the time that I was adapting the book the Arab Spring was just starting. So there are some very small references to that, um, but it's something that I think would be, you know, a great point to continue research to see where things are going in Egypt um, politically now and in the future. Yeah. What's, I mean, I, I have a whole bunch of questions about that. Um, what's the, do you think that um, the, what, what, what do you think the your take on the, how the Arab Spring will impact um belly dances like is it seen as something that's traditional and should be like reaction like is this is it considered like a positive cultural thing for like, egypt or is it considered a react like something to be reacted reacted against it's it's a really complicated cultural issue because dances and music um they are a very very big part of egyptian life in a way that 
dance and music are not really parts of I mean you know dance and music are are big parts of lots of people's lives but it's not quite the same there isn't that kind of passion there's there's an embarrassment I would say about dance in western culture that is not there in um in Arab culture um as long as it's being done appropriately and this is where the controversy comes in because if you are dancing as a woman if you're dancing at home in in your house you know in an appropriate space away from men in a traditional setting that's absolutely fine as long as you're not out in public doing it for money in front of people um and of course that is a lot of professional belly dancers do this you know and so um that's perceived as negative and um not something that should be culturally appropriate um however belly dance shows are extremely popular even among people who are traditional um and so and and dance is a very big part of um ceremonial life as well during a wedding um dance is a big part of what's going on as a celebration of joy but also as an expression of fertility um and and there are lots of cultural connotations for dance in egypt um and and throughout the arab world um and it's interestingly because it is so contested because there is a sense that um dance is both this wonderful positive thing but also this slightly dangerous thing it can also be used as a site of resistance to cultural norms um certainly um in a place like iran where dancing is um recently um this they've kind of overturned this but for a long time it was it was considered to be illegal to dance publicly in iran and um as a result of that you can then use dance as a site of resistance because the second that you do dance then you are resisting the culture you know that the, the mm. um political situation and so you've you've by by making it illegal it's then becomes a ground to become a political statement um and and returning to egypt um certainly music and the songs that were such a big part of the protesting and then um as you know um as the announcement of the elections were announced yesterday dancing in the streets was literally that was literally happening there was dancing in the streets um as people were celebrating the election of mercy the, the new um islamic um president the uh, muslim brotherhood president there um and it's a complex issue because a lot of certainly a lot of professional dancers um are speculating about what will happen to the entertainment industry and whether it will be negatively impa- impacted by the election of um a an a president who is um from the Muslim Brotherhood party um but there's equally speculation that um the tourism industry is so dependent on people a lot of people do go to Egypt specifically with the purpose of of watching dance and so it would be very um it wouldn't be a very wise move and and the, the other thing is that throughout history there have been several times where dance was banned or partially banned or there've been these attempts to restrict dance in a professional setting um going all the way back to i believe it's 1854 was the first um known known ban where all the dancers were sent out of cairo and away up the river because they were these creatures of you know iniquity and sin and just causing all kinds of problems um but a few years later they relented and the ban was taken away um because partly because i think it's it's such a culturally important part of people's lives and also because economically it's it's not very wise to ban something that generates a lot of tax revenue um and generates a lot of revenue generally so i think that it's um it's a fine line to walk and it'll be interesting to see what happens whether dance becomes kind of part of the national dialogue and and what that you know in in this new egypt that's being built whether dance becomes a, a big symbol or not it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the next few years right that's like when you when you were discussing about how you're your friend when you did the research your friend had been working from she was from Scotland was it and she was a foreign dancer yes. and um then there was a brief time where foreign dancers were banned and then they removed the ban um sort of similar type of idea 
Yes, similar. Um, uh, I don't believe that dancers... Um, uh, what had happened was that there were restrictions put in place on um, what foreign foreign workers were allowed to do, mm. and there was a brief there was a brief period where um, foreign dancers were no longer allowed to. You know, this is another example of that kind of restriction, um, where foreigners were not allowed to partake in certain professions, and one of these was dancing. Um, but uh, but there were several ways around this. One was that you could re rejig your act to become more of what's called a folkloric act so instead of doing specifically what's known as belly dancing you um or in egypt it's called rakshaki which means um eastern dance and instead of doing that you could do something that was a, a more of a folksy kind of um uh folk dance um but equally there was a lot of pressure um both from foreign dancers and from egyptian dancers to remove this band partly because um frankly a lot of the dancers um, working in the tourist trade in Egypt now are not local dancers because um, as Egypt has grown more conservative, um, it's become such a negatively perceived profession that a lot of um, young Muslim women don't want to go into that profession. They may enjoy dance, they may enjoy watching dance, it might be part of their private lives, but a lot of them don't want to become dancers. And so um, to kind of fill this gap economically, um, foreign workers are used in, in the same way that foreign workers are used in many hmm. professions around the world. So um, so they, they weren't able to keep the band going for very long. It was only a couple of years and then it was overturned very quickly. But restrictions are still in place. Um, there's restricted movement because you have to give your passport in to the people that are managing you and, and things of that nature. So there's still quite a lot of restrictions on, on foreign dancers hmm. compared to local dancers. So. so are most of the foreign dancers are they like like Western or like Egypt or like Lebanon, Turkey, Greece, or like all over? Or? Um, there are a variety. I would say um, people from Lebanon, Turkey, and Greece probably wouldn't. I mean, Egyptians wouldn't look at them as being quite quite as foreign. Right. I suppose um, maybe Turkey. Um, uh, I spoke to a few dancers that were from the UK. Um, there are certainly dancers that are from France, um, but the big. Um, big one is um, Eastern European dancers. Um, there are quite a lot of those working in Egypt, and they're not perceived very highly. Um, they may be, be very technically skilled, but they're often perceived as um, kind of undercutting the market, um, which I think is rather unfortunate. But I also understand that in any situation where um, there's a lot of pressure and there's a very, you know, in, in a market where everyone wants to be successful, um, it's very easy to try to differentiate yourself in a way that, um, you know, to, to need a scapegoat, to blame, you know, the negativity of the profession and the negative um, connotations of the profession on, on someone else. And, and you know, um, in this case, that's become the dancers from um, Eastern Europe. Mm. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, your book is called Global Moves. And it's really interesting in terms of thinking about globalization in general, about how belly dance for Egypt is an import and an export, like how yes. it's... Um, like is in, in in Egypt is it considered? I mean, when you look at Wikipedia, you'll see it's it's kind of one of those muddled things where you know belly dance gets like people aren't sure is it originally Egyptian or from Turkey or f farther east or you know like Greece. Like there's lots mm -hmm. of you know it's it's harder to pin down the belly dance you know compared to say relig some religions which say what well, was founded on this day or you know at this in this spot. Like do, do people in Egypt see? belly dance says, oh yeah, this is our Egyptian dance, or is it something that they see as more muddled as well? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think um, I, I think the question of origins is always incredibly interesting because there is absolutely no way to know. Um, there's right. very little evidence before a certain period that's written down about 
this particular style of dance. And as a result of that, um, the idea of what the origins of dance of this dance might be has become a really strong area where people um, project their imaginations um, to give them, uh, you know, a, a sense of what they want to be. You know, it's become a place where people can then enact um, their fantasies about what they would like dance to be. Um, and, and that's resulted in a lot of interesting things. Um, in terms of a sense of national identity for Egyptians, um, speaking in the modern period, definitely, yes, people are very proud of dance. Um, certainly Egyptian dancers are. There, there's a sense, um, it, it was interesting because in the most recent um, ban where foreign dancers were um, excluded from the profession for a time, the argument was that it should be kept as a part of Egyptian territory. There's kind of a contradictory ar argument going on. One one side of it was um, Egyptian dance, this kind of dance is, is Egyptian. Only Egyptians can do it. It belongs to Egyptians because it is something that um, is, is in our blood, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but then conversely, the other argument was Basically, it's not really a profession. It's so easy that anyone can do it, and it's like, well, you can't. Mm -hmm. You can't have it both ways. It's either you know, it's either that you're born with it, or everyone can learn it, and therefore it's not valuable, and that's why you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and so there was this converse. But you know, certainly one of those strains is that people are very tied to dance because it's an expression of um, self. It's an expression of um, connection with. Um, with the land, with the nation, um, and certainly many kinds of folkloric dance in Egypt are very um, evocative of rural Egypt. And living in Cairo, a lot of people will have families, or they will have been from a place that's um, further, you know, away, not not near a city. And dance is something that connects them in the same way that um, something like country music is is actually an expression of um, longing for the country rather than actually being usually about the country it's it's more it's a it's a music that people listen to when they're in the city and they're away from their country background it's dance is like that for people in egypt as well okay. so interesting yeah and also when you think about um in terms of authenticity um in terms of things think about costumes like for example yes reading about the bid bid law is uh, is I mean, yeah. am i pronouncing that right about the idea that it was imported into egypt actually by a supposedly I mean, by some cabaret owner in Cairo to meet Western tourist expectations about what belly dancers should look like. And is that, is that, is, is that, is that right? Or am I miss like, um, do you mean that like the two piece, the two piece costume? Is that, yeah, yeah. The two piece sort about, of yeah. stereotypical yeah. belly dance costume being something that was sort of a Hollywood origin and then yes. like, or us or us. Yes. I forget it was Hollywood or if it was like, yeah. you know, Europe in 1800s and then imported into, um, yes into Egypt is that is that the sort of standard like I mean I know uh, your your, yeah. your cover of your book has like this the one store of my moods or whatever with like all the costumes oh, yeah. um mm -hmm. but is this like what is, like what's is there sort of a standard costume and is and is that the one that was imported or is it all sort of all over the map or how does it well it's um again it's it's an interesting one because origins are something um I mean when you look at any um, performative thing that's that's done for um, the outside world. Any kind of performance that's done where suddenly there's an outside, there's another culture mm -hmm. involved. Um, suddenly you're no longer doing it just because that's you know what you would do if you were there with your friends by yourself. It right. suddenly becomes something that's um, looked upon, and and as a result, it changes. And and you, um, especially when there's economic inequality involved, um, if you know. If people come along, uh, you know, you can go back as far as um, the writer Flaubert, who was there in the 1850s, right, yeah. looking for these belly dancers, looking all over, up and down Egypt for these belly <laughs> dancers. And 
um, when you consider, and he was only one of many that that went to Egypt on this on these like pilgrimages to find these dancers, to these um, journeys of the self, to to look for these dancers and and find something, you know, and um, and hear all these dancers saying, well, you know, if everybody's coming this way, you know, even people who may not have been dancers coming along and saying, okay, well, here are all these people coming and they want to see the dancer, so let's show them let's show them what the dancers are like, you know. Um, so from their perspective, anything that they could do that would give the experience of, you know, the, the expected experience of this exotic, you know, right. dancing um, to, to see, that they they all wanted to see, um, you know, as from as far as they were concerned, you know, it, it just gives them an economic way ahead because they've, you know, uh, they're being asked to do something and um, not asked, you know, implicitly asked to, to make this performance. And so for them, even though perhaps that wasn't what they would have chosen to do um, just by themselves if they weren't professionally doing it, then, you know, it's it just becomes another aspect of the performance itself. Um, and I think the costume is very much along those lines. And and certainly the the evolution of the kind of standard expectation of what the belly dance costume is, I think is very strongly influenced by Hollywood. Um, and you can kind of trace back, it, but the other aspect of that is, even if you look at older images, if you trace back these older images and look at things and say, okay, well, they weren't wearing two-piece costumes. They were wearing your regular style galabeas, which is long, long dresses, you know, or they were wearing Western style clothes. A lot of the old lithographs just show women in, in basically what looked like 18th century um, women's clothes with the, the wide skirts and the kind of bodice tops. Um, then even all of that is, is in many ways constructed because these images are created by artists to um, certainly a lot of the orientalist imagery right. is very constructed. It's very posed. It's, it's very much a fantasy, not of, it's not, it's not a documentary. It's a fantasy. Um, and, you know, there are lots of, lots of writings about how problematic that is as a, as an approach to culture. I mean, I think you can certainly take away that lots of the images are beautiful, um, whether it's then an accurate representation of what, that culture was like, I think, is a much bigger question, um, which is why authenticity is such a troublesome word in my book. So yeah, there's lots of there's lots of interest. That's why I think it's so interesting. Is there's so many um, thorny questions around like authenticity, but then if you think about yourself, you know, in terms of like feminism, like you describe yourself mm. as a gender theorist. So what's your? Um, yes. I'm sure that there's it's not like belly dance is not without controversy in feminist circles also. Yeah, I think that's definitely very true. Um, but equally, I think that it's a dance, um, you know, there's a part where I'm, I'm talking about the differences between belly dance and um, burlesque, um, right. because a lot of a lot of belly dancers don't like to be, even if they enjoy watching burlesque, they don't like to be associated with burlesque because they think that there's a very different ethos. Um, uh, and a lot of people will ask when you talk about belly dance, they'll, they'll feel that it's a very... Um, one-sided transaction that for them you know if if they're not familiar with you know you know the variety of belly dance that i've come into contact with they might assume that belly dance is only ever a female dancer in front of a male audience a primarily male audience and and my experience has been the complete reverse of that which is that i mean often it is a female performer but usually it's in a context of other women um Men tend to get very uncomfortable at belly dance shows because they are not belly dance shows. The kind that I go to are not for men. They are they are for women. They are something that women do to socialize with one another. Um, and I think that um, 
it can be a very empowering experience to have um, a kind of feminine sensuality that is not restricted or not being um, held down. Held down, or or um, or equally, that's not being. Um, it, there's no expectations, I suppose, is is one way of looking at it. I mean, certainly there are. There's always expectations with gender. That's one of the points that I raise is that gender is always something that you do for someone else. It's it's never. It's rarely something that you do just for yourself. Um, but equally, there's a very different um, uh, level of expectation when you're in a situation that's outside of your ordinary life. Um, and for a lot of women, um, this kind of dance was a, a femininity that they could engage with that was perhaps more exaggerated than they would um, normally have in their regular lives, but equally not exaggerated in a way that meant that they felt that they had to um, uh, have sexual expectations put upon them, I guess is the best way of describing it. Um, and I wouldn't say, I mean, I think that there are a lot of um, kind of modernist feminist interpretations of burlesque as well. But that dance does come from a very different background, and that dance is primarily about, um, you know, the female display for a male audience. It is, it's not as, um, I mean, belly dance has, has a history and, and roots in, um, in, in homes, in mothers and daughters, in aunts and nieces, in, um, in, in female societies. Um, and while when you take the, the dance out of that context, when you take it outside the Arab world and, and then you're in classrooms and, you know, you're at festivals and um, it's no longer a family activity in the truest sense, in, a, in the sense of family members doing it together. Um, I think that a lot of for a lot of people, the appeal was that here was something that you could do that was sensual, but equally um, was still um, something that you could bring your family to and, and not feel uncomfortable about this, something that you could go... Um, you know, certainly I've seen plenty of um, mother-daughter teams going to belly dance classes together and finding this, you know, a really relaxing experience to have a, you know, um, a time that they could spend together exploring femininity. I think that that's something that does carry over. Um, so I think that that's, you know, it certainly there are valid feminist critiques that you could bring to bear. But equally, I think that um, on, on a scale of things, it, it's also a feminist activity as well. Right. Yeah. And my assumption would be that, um, like, do you think that the critiques are something that is probably more old school and that the sort of, um, reaction that would be more focused on like empowerment or in terms of like, you know, something that women do like, you know, uh, you know, for each other is, is a more, more modern way of thinking about it compared to like, yeah, like less sort of cut, like cardboard cutout caricature. Well, or... interestingly enough, I think that, um, in fact, a lot of the, um, much of the popularity of belly dance, certainly in the States, um, came about with new age feminism, with new wave feminism in the, in the 70s, um, as people were starting to explore and become more comfortable with their bodies, as women specifically mm. were starting to explore and become more comfortable with their bodies. This was perceived as a way that people could, um, that women could um, engage with, themselves physically um, to to break out of this mold where they were only ever um, being enacted upon mm. in a sexual way and that they could kind of explore things without having to feel like they were um, transgressing their usual gender boundaries because here you're in this whole different world you're in this whole different space you're dressed up in a completely different way you're doing things that you would never do and so therefore you're allowed to break the boundaries a little bit and and as a result of that I think um, for a lot of um, feminists it was very appealing and that's where some of this kind of um, new agey goddess um, okay. imagery has come out of um, and and I think now um, 
in fact, some of the feminist critiques would be um, not so much about um, the male gaze issue as it would be about um, feminism as a um, feminism um the globalness of feminism i suppose um because there have been a lot of critiques recently about whether feminism um actually has the same aims in in all countries and in all nations and in all walks of life um and whether feminism that speaks to people in the united states and the needs of feminism there mm. are the same as the needs of feminism in egypt um or the same as the needs of feminism in hong kong or you know sub-saharan africa or, or all around the world and whether um, women really have the same needs and whether those needs can be addressed using the same tools. Um, so that would be the kind of critique of feminism now of belly dance would be not so much um, about the male gaze, but it would be more about whether using this dance as an expression of femininity and sensuality is in some way impacting on the women that use this dance um, in the Middle East or in other parts of the world and whether that's um, challenging um, or, or whether it's helpful or whether it's not helpful for, for other women who are exploring feminism in different ways. So. Mm, okay, I mean, that's interesting. Um, on a sort of unrelated, well, kind of related note, so you were you mentioned uh, on your blog you were going to do a paper about belly dance in Second Life. Indeed, um, yes. So tell me about that. Yes, um, well, I did write a little bit about it in Global Moves as well, but I've kind of updated it, and um, now it's um, it's going into an anthology of... Um, chapters by many authors about belly dance and globalization. Um, and I found out about belly dance and second life um, through a conversation that I was having with one of my research participants who lived in Florida. And she just happened to kind of casually mention it as we were having this conversation about wide ranging topics. Um, and I really became fascinated by this, mainly because I just could not get my head around the idea that you would want to do something like dance in a virtual scenario. Because, I mean, I understand the appeal of um, a virtual reality on many levels. It allows you to communicate with people. It allows you to try on things that you wouldn't otherwise get to do. Um, in fact, in a lot of ways, it's it's parallel to uh, you know things like like dance. You know, one of my arguments about dance is that it is a space outside your your ordinary life where you get to do things um, that you wouldn't ordinarily get to do. And and a virtual reality is is much like that. You can explore things that you wouldn't ordinarily get to do. Um, and it allows you to kind of um, play around with bits of yourself that you don't normally get to engage with. Um, but, you know, belly dance, any kind of dance or sports or anything that's really full, I just could not understand why you'd want to do it. You know, or like baking cookies, you know, would you really <laughs> want to do that in a virtual world? You don't get a cookie at the end. Well, You're like, I don't I understand. So <laughs> <laughs> You don't get the calories yeah. either, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I, exactly. So, you know, um, so, so I, I was just... Fascinated and, and just you know completely couldn't wrap my head around it at first. So obviously I had to go try it out for myself and see what it's all about and um, interview a few people in Second Life, a few avatars in Second Life about their um, why they were doing it, um, what they got out of it, and um, and and the other thing that I learned in the end was that it's not so much that belly dance is a big phenomenon as dancing as a whole is a really big phenomenon in Second Life. It's one of the main activities that people do. Um, you know, anywhere you go. There's always um, often when you go into like a bar in Second Life, there's um, there's like a glowing ball that hangs above the floor and then you click on that and it makes your character dance. Um, and you can also download um, little animations that will make your character dance when you play them and things like that. Um, and it, it just became it became apparent that it wasn't so much about belly dance, although, of course, for a lot of people, you know, really, really what I learned was that um, people really weren't doing things that were really that different from what they did in ordinary life. I mean, they might lead a slightly enhanced life or they might have a, a different shape or they might um, have built something like a, a, an island that they really enjoyed or you know they may have 
constructed things slightly, but mainly people did a lot of the same activities that they did in real life. And as a result of um, kind of starting down this road of conversations and, and speaking to people and interviewing people, I eventually found out that, um, you know, someone pointed out to me that um, some of the moves that they were seeing in one of the videos that I was sharing with the research community, um, somebody emailed me and said, well, that's a routine that my teacher taught to me, my, my real life actual teacher taught to me and um and i know that she did some motion capture animation for this company um and so then i interviewed the company and i interviewed the dancer and i talked you know to them about what they thought about dance in a virtual world and things like that um and in the end the conclusion that i had was that um people um like to do things that are a little bit different for themselves but they don't want to you know most people you know certainly there are people who really push to the extreme but a lot of people you know they don't people would ask me is everyone that belly dances or is it like an old you know 40 year old man who's sitting in his basement and lives at home with his mom and now he's he's having this fantasy of being this amazing belly dancer and the answer is no a lot of times it was people who really were belly dancers in real life um and to either had stopped taking classes for a while for whatever reason or um realized that it was much cheaper to buy a costume online than it is in real life <laughs> or um you know there's there are a number of reasons, but they weren't they weren't at all what I was expecting. Um, and so that was really interesting um, to find that it was really not so different from real life. I thought that was fascinating. Huh. Interesting. Um, okay, so moving on from Global Moves, um, you're planning another book on LeanPub. Um, you're, you're, it looks like you've started another book on LeanPub. Um, is, that, is that something that you're going to publish in progress, or are you going to wait until it's finishes well are you going to talk talk about that book or so the book is um called we dance around in a ring and suppose travel memoirs of a belly dance phd and um it's it's kind of it is what it says it's um it's all the kind of stuff that i couldn't really put in the research book because even though they were really fun and lovely exciting stories that happened to me while i was doing the research they weren't really about belly dance they were about things that were going on in egypt while i was there um and um and i just think that you know, I, I really enjoyed my time in Egypt. It was really intense time, um, but I just, I had so many stories at the end of that time that I really wanted to share with people. Um, and uh, and I would like to publish this one in a different way. Um, the reason that the first book was published in the way that it was is that I'd not actually planned to go down the Lean Pub route at all. It was, um, it was sort of, um, it was something that um, was suggested to me much later after the PhD was done. Um, so all that, that book was already completed anyway. Um, whereas with this one, I have a bit of more of a chance to play around with things and let it develop a little more organically. Um, a lot of the material I have already because I was keeping a blog at the time that I was in Egypt. And so um, there's some organization to be done, but certainly um, with this book, I could take a much different route and kind of um, explore the way that I want it to be structured and release things slowly and do all the things that LeanPub is, is known for. How did you discover LeanPub? I discovered it um, through a software developer that I know who suggested LeanPub as a, as a publication option when I was looking around. Um, because initially, I'd, the first book I'd wanted to publish as an academic book um, with an academic publishing house and have a, you know, a hardback copies and, and all that. And um, uh, I'd had some interest from publishers. Um, and then because I was no longer in the world of academia, I knew that I wouldn't have the time to do the revisions that they wanted. And I wanted to get it out quickly because um, in academia and certainly in publishing, everything moves very slowly. Like even if I'd done all the revisions in the way that 
they wanted it to be packaged, it would still be another year. And I could see that things in Egypt were moving so rapidly that I really wanted the, the research to be, to be available quickly. Um, and uh, so I found out about the site um, and I decided that it would be a really good way of, um, of doing it because it just looked very straightforward and, um, and not as, you know, and I, I looked at some other self-publishing options as well. Um, and this one, I think for me, the big thing was um, it, would, it would allow me to have a lot more control over the material than any of the other options that I'd explored. Um, so even though I wasn't doing the, the slow release of material, it was still um, something that would allow me to um, things in the way that I really wanted them to be done. Um, and, you know, just that with things like um, release it at a price that I was comfortable with um, and things, things like that, um, which you wouldn't really get in a lot of other places. Right. Um, excellent. Uh, so let's see. So do you think that um, in terms of books that originate as, I think you are our first book that originated as a PhD thesis, um, your, your global moves. Uh, do you think it's something that um, other people who've done a PhD thesis and are looking to, because I don't know how the copyright works. Like, I mean, I assume the university owns the copyright for the thesis itself, but that the work is something that obviously is yours and you can adapt. Um, do you think this is like something that, uh, other people doing PhDs should look at if they want to make want to make their work more available to a global, more broad audience, or or what, or is there anything we should try to do to improve to make that easier to get started? Sure. Um, well, to start with the copyright issue, um, I'm not sure how it works in the states. It it depends in part on um, what kind of research you're doing and things of that nature. Um, I I would need to look again at the copyright page, but I believe that I still own the copyright for. Um, my thesis the mm. issue wasn't so much that the copyright um would belong to the university as it was that the university um also publishes a copy so it's also available on their website but if someone else wanted to publish it it would be available it's just that there would already be a competing copy out there mm. um and with LeanPub that wasn't an issue whereas with a lot of traditional publishers and even self-publishers um you know they're going to say well why should i put this content out there even revised content why should i put this out there when there already is an existing you know the the research can be accessed somewhere else um and and so this was one of the appealing things for me was that you know um it, there wouldn't be that issue mm-hmm. um you know i could still do it and um uh and i think um i think it, it is actually a really appealing model for for um young researchers to go this route um the the risk that they would take um, at the moment is that um, if you are still working in academia, um, then it's not as prestigious because you won't have the pedigree of mm-hmm. an academic publisher. Um, however, um, lots of people graduate with PhDs and there are only a limited number of academic positions in the world. So plenty of people move on from academia and they go on and do other things. And um, and then their research, you know, there might be one copy languishing in a library somewhere um, or it might be online. But, um, lots of universities have moved to that model where they, they make the thesis available, um, usually as a PDF, um, which can often be hard to work with. And I just think that there's it's underused. I mean, the technology at the disposal of universities to disseminate research is really underused. Um, and, you know, something like this, it allows people to download in many formats. Um, it allows you to um, market things in a much more interesting way. Um, uh, I think it, it could be much easier to find as well, you know, because if it's just on the university website, then you'd have to know 
who the researcher was, you have to know which university they went to. It can be very difficult to find things when they're only limited to that arena. And with this, you have a little more flexibility. Um, I also think that for a lot of researchers, um, it, it would be really interesting to um, not publish all at once, but to kind of publish results as things go along, which is kind of the way that journals work traditionally, right. is that, you know, you, you have a small amount and then you publish and then you have a little more and then you publish. And then at the end, maybe you put it all together and you get one big book. Um, but this you could do you could kind of um, replicate that idea by using um, the lean pub model and publishing, you know, a chapter at a time. Um, and certainly lots of researchers are really fed up with the way that academic journals traditionally work because, um, you know, you write all of this stuff and you send it off to the journal and you do that for free. And then the journal charges you money to um, not you yourself, but, you know, when you want a copy of the journal, um, you then get the, the, the university gets charged exorbitant fees to mm -hmm. subscribe to these journals. Um, so basically, you know, in the end, the only people making money are the, the journals themselves um, and all the researchers contribute the content for free and then review the content for free as well, because everything in academia has to be peer reviewed. Um, so all of this, this stuff is done out of the goodwill of their hearts. And, you know, um, and then at the end, you just feel like, well, uh, you know, it's nice to have the prestige, which is, you know, it is important in academia because um, having recognition of your peers is really how research gets vetted. Um, but equally, it would be nice if um, I had, you know, a few more pennies to support the research that I was doing, um, not just from grants and not just from salary, but also to have the sense that um, the research is getting getting used and downloaded and, you know, nobody's missing out. Um, so I think that... Um, I think that was an appealing thing for me as well, because when I looked at some of the other self-publishing models, certainly they were not as, um, you know, uh, the percentages were not as good. Um, and certainly in academia, if I'd gone down the route of publishing um, a print book, um, I wouldn't have expected any money out of that at all. Um, so I've been I've been pleasantly surprised at my royalties so far. Um, and even though that wasn't the reason to do it, I was pleasantly surprised by that. So. Excellent. Well, I, I really like that how you reached out to people in the Google group about, you know, says, hey, like, what, was, what was that one email? So, you know, like, hey, software developers, you know, it's like, you know, not, it was, it was really, it was really cute. I, I, that was awesome. Um, it was a really good email. I like that. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, is there anything that you'd want us to do to, hmm. like, like, we talk about journals, um, or just in general, is there anything that you wish we improve or make easier? But, and then specifically around, the idea of when you when you talk about journals and re and people coming from academia where there's mm -hmm. this notion of peer review, et cetera, is there anything like that you wish LeanPub in made more like enabled? You know, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, I think there's two things that I think would be really helpful. One is that um, when I tried to convert my thesis from Word mm. into the LeanPub format, um, it was a bit of a shambles. Um, it did work in the end, and you guys were really helpful and really responsive. I, I appreciated that a lot. Um, but the only thing that worked was kind of saving it as a web page and then redoing it. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the way that when you're managing a long document like a thesis in Word, um, and it just happens to be that mine was already in Word. You know, if somebody were coming into their thesis, if somebody were entering their PhD for the first time and saying, well, okay, I'm not going to write it in Word, I'm going to do it in Markdown, then they wouldn't have had this problem. Um, but I think it's going to be a while before that happens. Um, and it would yeah. be nice if there were an easier way to manage long documents, conversion of long documents from Word. Um, and I also had that one very strange issue where all of my offset quotes, which are a big thing when you're quoting long quotes, um, they, <laughs> because of the way that um, 
uh, like code mark code examples work in in markdown um everything that i quoted from someone else was showing up in a really weird format and it took me a while to work out why that was happening um and again it was fine um but it would be nice if there was kind of a um the academics guide to um, converting your thesis from Word into into Markdown because I think there's some specific issues about having a really long existing document um, that could be better addressed. Um, but the one thing that wasn't an issue at all, which surprised me, um, was that I use kind of a program to um, keep track of all my references. It's just like a database program. Um, and I expected that the tags that that program uses were really going to, to screw up and that it wasn't going to work and it was going to break everything. It, it didn't, it worked fine. Um, so I was pleased by that because that just, that will make it easy for a lot of people who are using that same program to, um, to convert their theses into, into Markdown. Um, that will make it a lot easier. Um, in terms of other things that you could think about, um, I spoke about peer review. Um, it, it's a difficult one. There's some really good, um, guidelines about um, setting up an academic journal that include things like be best practice about peer review and things like that. Um, I think that um, the thing that you struggle with is that when you're doing that kind of thing, um, you need a big enough set of peer reviewers, uh, you know, because, you know, in my case, for instance, I would need people that were in the humanities or um, you'd need other academics. But then if you get somebody who comes along who's a biologist, you can't peer review for them. So you'd need a whole community for that separate um separate group of people but equally they wouldn't all have to be lean pub authors you could you could have um a group of you know if you could set up a program where people could become lean pub peer reviewers um and they wouldn't have to be you could have kind of a, a database of reviewers that um people could use if you know set up some kind of affiliate academic affiliate program yeah. is this so, something where the the peer reviewer is known like the where the author goes out and gets the peer reviewers because like obviously at lean pub we don't like have mm. the type of editorial thing that a journal does, but like if yes. you went and you know found like you know a top experts in your field and said, hey, you know, I, I'll send you a Dropbox sharing request and you can do a peer review of my work. Mm. Like, is that? Um, yeah. What the answer is, if you're working with a journal, then um, you you send your article in and they have a board of reviewers right. that they already have set up, and it's normally done blind. Um, if you are working, if you are producing an academic book, like for instance, when I was um, shopping my manuscript around to different academic publishers, um, oftentimes they will ask, who do you think would be a good reviewer for this? And, you know, you just, you mentioned some big names in your field. Um, depending on how close of a relationship you have with them, you may have turned around to somebody and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm shopping that, you know, I have a manuscript. Um, I'm, I've sent it off to these publishers and they may come to you for peer review. It, would you have time for that? Is that something you'd be interested in doing? So the answer is yes, you can certainly depend on authors to provide a list of, of people that might be good peer reviewers. Um, you know, uh, it's certainly something that would be in their interest to do um, and to have a community because that's how it works is, you know, you, you peer review someone's book and then they turn around and they ask you to do it a few years later. So, right. So a bunch of, of a favor, a favor model economy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, uh, since obviously, since like in terms of the program that you mentioned, um, what like that you use to keep track of your research? Mm -hmm. uh, if this if this is helpful to someone else, what program was it? Like the yes, I use um, yes, I use I use one called EndNote. I think that there are other ones, but that was the one that my university supported, so that's the one that I use. Um, EndNote is a very it's a great program when it works, but it also does some very funny things at times. Um, and so I was very pleased that um, it was able to convert the tags easily. Basically. Um, it just keeps a database of all of your references and you either enter those manually or um, in an academic library. Normally when you check a book out, you can download a file that 
contains the bibliographical information for that book. And so then you can keep that, you just add that to your list of references. And then as you're going through and you're writing your book or your paper, um, you just kind of insert a little tag that says, please put so-and-so in this point. And then it will automatically do your bibliography for you as well at the end. Mm. Um, and it just kind of keeps track of everything. Um, and it, it really, really makes things much easier than doing it all by hand. Um, and you can put in a lot more references. I feel it, it just, um, it, it definitely upped the amount of stuff that I could include as references. Um, there were issues that I had with EndNote, but none of them were with LeanPub, so we won't go into that. Okay. Um, <laughs> cool. Uh, let's see. So what's surprised you um, most about LeanPub, other than the, the, the issues around long documents that you had? Like, is there yeah. anything that that is that sort of you wouldn't have expected that, like, either good or bad that... Um, um, let me think about that for a minute. Um, uh, I think the thing that surprised me in a very good way was how responsive you guys were to feedback and questions. Um, that wasn't something that I was expecting. I was expecting to kind of, um, be there on my own and, you know, furiously working away and, and having problems and just kind of having to overcome them. Um, and you know, every time I had a question, you know, within a few hours or within a day, it was, it was answered or partially, you know, someone had said something about it that was helpful. Um, and most of the time it was resolved. Um, and I found that incredibly encouraging, um, you know, and, and, and really supportive and really, um, really wonderful because, you know, you don't get that, kind of treatment as, as an author as an academic you, you don't really get that kind of help most of the time mm -hmm. you know when you're working on something that's as big as a PhD obviously you have your supervisors and you have people there mentor mentoring you and helping you um, but in terms of technical problems you don't usually have somebody to to really help you sort that kind of stuff out and so I really appreciated that um, in terms of surprise surprising things um, um, yeah, I think we're going to end with that actually all right Cool. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, I think that's mm -hmm. probably it for me. So, uh, Caitlin, thank you very much for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it.